Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm an attorney with NFP's legal and compliance team. And we're on this podcast to break down the interesting and challenging issues relating to compliance uh, for group health plans and questions that we're seeing from employers. Uh, we live in the COVID-19 world now, and we are continuing to tackle questions and issues relating to COVID-19. Today, we have a very special guest, Jeff Seibel, my good friend and colleague, here at NFP, he helps lead NFP's actuarial team. We work together a lot on many different issues uh, relating to COBRA rates, rate setting generally, lots of other things. Um, so we've brought him on to help uh, give us an actuarial aspect uh, of COVID-19. Specifically, we're going to talk about the impact uh, of COVID-19 on costs, both for fully and self-insured plans. Um, Jeff, we know uh, in the actuarial world, it's very similar to the legal world. Uh, we do have some disclaimers. Start us off with a disclaimer. Absolutely. <laughs> no better way to start off a podcast than with a disclaimer. Right. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction, Chase. Uh, as you said, uh, my name is Jeff Seibel. I'm an associate with the Society of Actuaries. And for a disclaimer, generally speaking, as we talk about costs and overall cost impacts for employers' plans, uh, it's important to know that each employer situation will be unique and data is still emerging. So figures discussed today are simply for illustrative purposes and not meant to be reflective of any one particular employer. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Um, before we get into self-insured plans and self-funded employers, can you briefly talk about the impact on fully insured plans? Yeah, for small groups, premiums are based on the experience of pools of groups and those premiums must be filed for approval with each state. So for groups renewing between now and the end of 2020, those premiums were actually filed back in 2019 and will not include any adjustments for COVID-19. For small groups renewing in 2021, there will likely be adjustments made for expected costs for, of COVID-19 in 2021. And it will be up to each auditor reviewing those rate filings whether the adjustments for COVID-19 are reasonable. For large groups, it's a slightly different picture. Those whose premiums are based on a portion or all of their own experience Carriers will be making adjustments for the expected costs of COVID-19 during the renewal plan year, whether it's 2020 or 2021. And since many unknowns remain, the main focus of those calculations should be on reasonability. But let's talk specifically about the costs related to COVID-19. What components go into figuring out what the cost is? In general, the total cost of COVID-19 on a self-funded plan is just going to be the average cost per person times the number of expected positive cases. We will get to the total number of positive cases in a minute here, but for the expected costs, we are starting to get some good data to allow actuaries to refine our cost calculations. Initially, we started to look at the cost of pneumonia patients as that was a similar diagnosis as COVID-19, but now we're actually seeing COVID-19 data and we can actually use that in our calculations. The first component in the is the cost of administering the test itself, which can run anywhere between two to $300 on average, depending on where the test is being administered, whether through a primary care physician, urgent care facility, emergency room, or a drive-through testing site. The next component is an actual cost of treatment. As most are aware, the vast majority of positive cases, 81.2%, according to the most recent CDC data, result in minimal treatment costs. 
These individuals will be treated at home, have a possible follow-up visit with a physician and possible prescriptions, but very low cost. The next group of treatments involve inpatient hospitalizations, which are the remaining 18.8% of positive cases. An inpatient stay can range anywhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 for those not requiring an ICU stay. But for those that do need to move into the ICU, the average costs are significantly higher, ranging between ninety dollars to $100,000 on average. So in total, if you add up the cost of the testing and the cost of the treatment, times the probability of a patient falling in each treatment category, you end up with a total cost of treatment per positive case of roughly $7,000. Wow. Okay. Some really interesting points there with the difference in costs between hospitalized and even those that are hospitalized that go into the ICU. Huge increases there. We're going to come back to that a little bit later, that point of hospitalization. But what you just described is a, is a national average of around $7,000 per positive case. And that's regardless of the type of coverage they have. Does the cost vary at all for employer-based coverage? Because we know we're looking at a slightly different population versus the national population, uh, particularly for self-funded employers. Absolutely. That's a great question. The employer market is in a much more ideal situation than the general public. For starters, the virus is impacting older patients much more severely than younger patients. As of the April 25th CDC data, almost 47% of all hospitalized patients were age 65 and above. Mm -hmm. This means someone in the primary employer-based coverage age of 18 to 64 has a lower probability than that national average of requiring hospitalization which obviously reduces the expected cost per positive case for employer groups. Additionally, the employer-based coverage population tends to be healthier than the overall population on average. Members that have particular comorbidities, and a comorbidity is just a condition that's present along with COVID-19, are more likely to require more intensive care. I really like that word comorbidity. It's fun to say, even if it is a little bit morbid. Give us some examples though of comorbidities. Yeah, it's quite the tongue twister. <laughs> the most common comorbidities associated with COVID-19 are hypertension, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and chronic lung disease. So employers that have a higher instance of these particular conditions in the population are at a much higher risk for COVID-19 cost impacts than other employer groups. Overall, as an employer evaluates how COVID-19 will impact their plan, they should be aware of the age of their population and the prevalence of those key comorbidities. Yeah. Okay. So at least that's some good news for employers, though, that maybe they're in slightly better position than the national average. You mentioned employers evaluating the cost of impact of COVID-19. What tools and resources are available for employers and how, do, how does an employer know if it's an effective tool? Yeah, there are obviously many different things that they can look at, but first let's just touch briefly on what makes an effective model. There are many models being floated out on the internet, so simply Googling the topic will le likely lead employers down a variety of rabbit holes that do not necessarily produce proper results. Mm -hmm. First, an employer-specific model should take into account the location of the members covered under the plan. Obviously, various counties have seen much higher infection rates than others. So models using national averages are interesting, but will not be very accurate for an employer that has all their employees in Billings, Montana, per se. Mm -hmm. Conversely, an employer with all their employees in New York City will likely underestimate the cost impact by using national averages. Additionally, the ages of the employees should be accounted for since hospitalization rates vary by age. If possible, adjusting for comorbidities present in the member population would be ideal, but that can get pretty difficult to get based on the data that's available to employers. Mm -hmm. Lastly, the treatment cost should be reasonable. 
Some early models painted rather dire pictures of cost impact of COVID-19, but they use fairly high infection rates and use average hospitalization costs that are in the upper range of what we're using today. In general, there are some interesting models available for free, like the MIT model that allows users to vary key metrics to understand how each impacts costs. And even our sales at NFP have built a model that determines the explicit cost of COVID-19 over the next 30, 90, and 180 days. Additionally, plan administrators are providing COVID-19 specific reporting that allows for employers to see the most current costs associated with the virus on their plans. I keep hearing you reference, and we've been talking about explicit costs of COVID-19. Are there implicit costs that you have not yet mentioned? Most certainly. On March 19th, 2020, the CDC recommended all non-essential, non-life-saving procedures be postponed until further notice. This deferral in normal healthcare activity and costs has resulted in the most recent models estimating a net cost decrease for COVID-19. So costs are going down. Costs are going down. What I have started to see is that not only were non-essential services postponed, but even emergency care for items like heart attacks and strokes have been reduced. In mm -hmm. fact, there have been a few articles where emergency room doctors have provided information about how they've been surprised to see the reduction in health in heart attack and stroke victims in the emergency rooms. Right. Now, it is possible that even and even likely that some of those normal heart attack and stroke victims simply became COVID-19 patients. But the overall reality is that since that announcement on March 19th, claims have reduced quite dramatically. In the last two weeks of March and into April, data is showing claims down by as much as 40% in some instances. Now, some states are starting to loosen the restrictions on non-essential care, so those deferred services are already starting coming back to normal. However, it will not likely be before August or later that claim activity is back to quote-unquote normal, since people will generally be hesitant to voluntarily visit inpatient and outpatient facilities. Additionally, some of those deferred services will likely never actually happen as people will either find alternative treatment or change their mind about receiving treatment. On top of the savings from those non-essential services, there has been a transition to people receiving care from telehealth services. This will likely have a long-term positive impact on plan costs as people utilize these low-cost alternative treatment options. On the downside, the negative impact of stay-at-home orders will be an increase in mental health utilization and the negative impact of people delaying necessary treatment, as I alluded to earlier. Ultimately, many current models are now starting to show the net cost impact of COVID-19 to be a decrease in claims costs. However, this information is changing daily and data is still emerging. So what is stated today will be updated and changed tomorrow. Yeah, this is the challenge for employers in the world that we are now in. It's just information changing so quickly, new data, new laws, everything is so fluid. How do you recommend an employer take action and plan in any way? Yeah, I most certainly don't envy an employer trying to actually estimate these costs and trying to budget and make difficult decisions on furloughing and terminations in the midst of all this. But uh, first of all, the key thing is just to keep up to date. I know many of us are growing tired of our conversations revolving around COVID-19 and we want to get back to normal and get back to work, but we still need to keep our ear to the ground, so to say. Secondly, start by understanding that for each person covered under the plan that an employer can keep from getting the virus, that's going to save the plan money. Mm -hmm. So as employees start to return to work, maintaining a clean workplace and taking necessary precautions and following proper protocols, it's not just the proper social thing to do, but also the prudent financial decision to make. More specifically, planning for the cost of COVID-19 is all about timing. If an employer is projecting costs for the calendar year 2021, some models are showing the peak of COVID-19 to be over and the impact of those deferred services I spoke about earlier to just about be over. 
This means that the only additional cost for claims incurred in 2021 will be the ongoing quote-unquote normal cost of treating COVID-19, much like our seasonal flu, and or any possible cost of a vaccination. For self-funded plans renewing between now and the end of the year, it gets a little trickier. At NFP, our actuarial department starts by calculating a baseline, which represents what we would expect the cost for the plan to be in the absence of COVID-19. We then look at each month of the renewal year and determine adjustment factors to that baseline for the impact of COVID-19 and the impact of deferred services. Ultimately, this leads to an overall adjustment factor, which could be negative or positive, depending on the relationship between COVID-19 claims and deferred services. Wow, so that's some really good insight into the brains of the actuaries there, learning about uh, how you go about calculating the cost impact of COVID-19. So thank you for sharing that. What other considerations should employers have? Yeah, so first for incurred but not reported reports, or I mean our calculations, Employers should expect some instability for calculations between March and the end of the year. Specifically, medical IBNR calculations will decrease as overall claims activity decreases during periods where non-essential procedures are postponed. Prescription drugs are slightly different. For those IBNR calculations, they may actually increase as members use more mail order prescriptions. The other thing to be mindful of is the fact that our U.S. healthcare system is complicated and connected in many different ways. With so many people becoming unemployed, there is a likely increase in Medicaid recipients, and as those members receive care, doctors and hospitals would not receive as much in reimbursement from Medicaid. So it's going to be interesting to see how this changes the way doctors and hospitals negotiate their reimbursement rates with administrators and networks in the future. Ultimately, this could have a negative impact by increasing medical and prescription drug trends. Additionally, this changes the workforce for many employers as people are laid off or furloughed. What I mean by that is the risk profile for an employer group can change as employees and members come and go from the plan. This essentially means that the remaining employees that are covered under a plan may be generally healthier or possibly even less healthy as the population changes. You may actually see an increase in more dependents coming onto the plan as they lose coverage under their own employers. Additionally, related to this, employers should be aware of any legislative discussions regarding COBRA subsidies and, in general, just overall legislative changes that can impact the medical plans, either directly or indirectly. An example would be if the government decides to increase subsidies for individual plans on the exchange, then employers will see more former employees choose the exchange over COBRA. Conversely, if the legislative action they decide to take is to increase subsidies for COBRA coverage, then employees are more likely to elect COBRA coverage as their ongoing method of care. What about the cost of any vaccination that is developed eventually? Um, how, is that, how would that play into this? Yeah, that's going to be a key component. So obviously we're waiting patiently for that vaccination to be developed. And it's going to be pretty critical uh, if it becomes available in 2021 to include that cost of the vaccination. The unfortunate reality is we don't know when that vaccination is coming. Hopefully it comes sooner than later. Um, but And we have no idea what the cost of that vaccination ultimately will be. Um, so that vaccination, keeping an eye on it and seeing what that cost will be, will be important for those plans renewing in 2021. In addition to that, it's going to be important to follow that infection rate that we talked about earlier, because obviously knowing the cost of per patient is important to know, but obviously understanding how many people will ultimately be infected will be the other key metric to follow. And understanding that most models today are actually assuming there's not going to be a quote-unquote second wave 
Uh, but that obviously can change as uh, states are loosening the stay-at-home orders and uh, how this in- infection ultimately spreads. For me, the key metric that I'm watching is hospitalization rates. Testing is going to be absolutely critical, and it's important for data and understanding who we need to be distanced from, and more testing will ultimately lead to more positive tests. But that does not necessarily mean there's a second wave coming. If the hospitalization rates begin to increase again, though, that's where I start to think that we have a second wave coming. Right. So that takes us back to the beginning a little bit where you outlined the difference in costs for a COVID-19 patient who is hospitalized versus one who is not and even between one who's hospitalized and one who is hospitalized and put in the ICU. So certainly a huge difference there. But thank you for outlining um, all those issues. That was a great recap of the ecosystem of our healthcare system and how one minor change in one part of the system can impact costs elsewhere. So certainly a lot to consider, lots of moving parts. As we started off with our disclaimer, um, what, what stands today may not stand tomorrow. Uh, things are so fluid, but what are what are some of the best places that employers can go to get additional information? Yeah, obviously a shameless plug here. NFP is a great resource. We've provided many articles and information available to employers, and our consultants are great resources per, for providing up-to-date information. Outside of NFP, the Society of Actuaries uh, website at, at soa.org has a dedicated resource page all about COVID-19-related items. Additionally, the American Academy of Actuaries also has a dedicated resource page at actuary.com coronavirus. The latter at the American Academy of Actuaries has compiled many different resources in one location, so it's fairly convenient to find a lot of information from a variety of resources there. The Johns Hopkins dashboard, I think, is really interesting to watch and follow. It's it's been updated to allow you to key in on specific counties so employers can see where exact outbreaks are occurring throughout the country. That's fantastic. Um, One more plug for NFP resources on our NFP.com latest insights page is where we have compiled all of our COVID-19 related resources, uh, including several related to uh, the the actuarial team put out, compliance, and everything in between and beyond. So go check that out at NFP.com latest insights. Jeff, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This has been fantastic. I'm sure our audience is very uh, thrilled to hear uh, these different issues and hear it from you as uh, the expert from the actuarial perspective. So thank you for joining us, as we like to say at the end of our podcast. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us.